Well, good morning. Good morning. I hope everyone's doing well this morning, and uh, it's a joy to be back with you. We have a lot of ground to cover, so we'll just plow into it. This morning's session is entitled Dangerous Doctrines. Uh, we will be looking at the metaphysical cultic origins of the word faith movement and some of the standard doctrines which the faith preachers teach that deviate from historical Christianity. And I think we'll be able to see by the end of this session that the prosperity gospel is indeed a different gospel altogether. Now, in order to understand a movement, it really helps to have at least a cursory working knowledge of the origins of said movement. And so let's look at some of the origins of the word faith movement. Where did the word faith movement begin? Well, it began with a man named Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. Quimby we could call the great-grandfather of the word faith movement. He's the one that first began to articulate some of the doctrines that we see today. Quimby was the father of the metaphysical cult known as New Thought. And when I say metaphysical, that's a big word, but really all metaphysical means is beyond the physical realm, beyond what we can see and touch here. And when I say cult, I mean any group uh, or sect that may call itself Christian yet compromises or denies some of the fundamental doctrines of the faith. Mormonism is a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses belong to a cult. Roman Catholicism is a theological cult, not a sociological cult, not a Jim Jones drink the Kool-Aid kind of a cult, but it is a theological cult because it compromises and denies some of the fundamental tenets of historical Christianity. So Quimby was the father of the metaphysical cult known as New Thought. New Thought essentially held that whatever you think about, you will attract to yourself. So if you think positive thoughts, you will you will enact these universal laws of attraction and you will attract positive things to yourself. If you think negative thoughts, you will enact universal laws of attraction and you will attract negative things to yourself. And it held that sickness and disease is rooted not in anything physiological but in mental uh, actions. That if you are sick is because you have been thinking wrongly. And cancer, arthritis, whatever you have, it's because you've just been thinking bad thoughts. So Quimby was the father of this cult known as New Thought. He was a student of occultism, hypnosis, and parapsychology. And his theoretical formulations served as the basis for what is today known as Christian science. You've probably heard of Christian science. Well, um, Mary Baker Eddy claimed that she was physically healed by Phineas Quimby. She really wasn't, but she claimed that she was. And she was so impressed by his teachings that she took his teachings and developed them a bit further, and from that formed what is today known as Christian science. Christian science is very poorly named, by the way, because Christian science is not Christian and it's not scientific. Kind of like grape nuts. You know, they're, they're not grape and they're not nuts. Uh, Christian science is not Christian and it's not scientific. But there are a lot of Christian science overtones 
in the modern word faith movement. If you have a friend or a family member who is in this movement to one degree or another, you might notice that, that when they get sick, they deny that they're sick. Maybe they've got a cold and their eyes are watering, their nose is running, they're congested, the whole nine yards. I mean, it's obvious they've got a cold, but if you ask them how they're feeling, they say, oh, I'm fine. You know, I'm not sick, no, I'm fine. Well, that's Christian science. And Christian science has its tentacles into the modern prosperity gospel. But basically, it held, holds that if you are sick, it's because you've been thinking wrong. And uh, watch this video clip from Andrew Womack. Andrew Womack, as he teaches basically the same thing. If you are reaping sickness, it's because you've thought sickness. It may not be that you've thought, all right, I want to be sick. But you've thought things that allow sickness to dominate you, such things as, well, I'm only human. I'm just a man. It's flu season. i got to get sick because it's flu season. You may not have sat there and have thought, I want the flu, but you've thought things that made you inferior to flu and that made you only human. You were denying and not focused on who you are in Christ, that no plague will come nigh your dwelling, and you have thought things that made you susceptible to Satan stealing your health. So if you are sick, it's your fault. You've been thinking wrongly. It's your fault. And this is a recurring theme throughout the prosperity gospel. If you are broke or if you are poor or if you are sick, it's your fault. It's your fault. Essek W. Kenyon is the grandfather of the Word Faith Movement. All of your modern prosperity preachers would appeal to Essek Kenyon as one of their spiritual forebears. Kenyon had very clear ties to the metaphysical cults, especially the New Age and New Thought movements, and he attended college at the Emerson School of Oratory uh, in Boston where the metaphysical cults flourished, and he was heavily influenced by them. Kenyon did have a number of things right, okay? He wasn't wrong on everything. He had a number of things right. He was right on a number of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, but he was wrong on a number of things as well. For example, Kenyon create a taught that God created not ex nihilo, not out of nothing, but rather God created by speaking faith-filled words. And we as believers can do the same thing. Kenyon taught that God did not create out of nothing. Rather, when God spoke, his words were containers of a substance, a tangible substance called faith. And everything that exists is made out of faith. The pew on which you are sitting right now, that's made out of faith. The car that you drive, that's made out of faith. The clothes that you're wearing, break it down to its basic elements and it's, you, you would find faith, substance of faith. And so when God spoke, his words were almost like Tupperware containers, like you would put spaghetti in. His words were containers of a substance called faith, hence word of faith. And we as believers, we can use our own words of faith to speak things into existence and to create our own physical realities. Kenyon held that humans took on the nature of Satan in the fall. When this happened, they forfeited to Satan their supposed deity and made Satan the legal god of planet Earth. Dear friends, God is, uh, Satan is not the god, the legal god of planet Earth. God is the legal god of planet Earth. Kenyon held that Jesus died not only a physical death, 
but he also died a spiritual death. Kenyon held that when Jesus died on the cross, the work of the atonement had just begun. When he died on the cross, then he went to hell. He suffered, was tormented by demons, ceased to be God, and then had to be reborn. And it was there that the atonement of our sins took place, not on the cross, but down in hell. And Kenyon held that health and wealth are obtainable by the believer's positive confession. So if you need money, you speak it into existence. If you need healing, you just speak it into existence. Kenneth Hagin, we could call the father of the modern word faith movement, and despite Kenneth Hagin's teaching that no Christian should die until he's at least 120 years old, you see that Kenneth Hagin didn't quite make it. He died uh, just a little bit before his 86th birthday. But like all of the faith preachers, Kenneth Hagin claimed that much of what he taught he received directly through divine revelation knowledge, that God spoke to him. In fact, Hagin claimed that Jesus physically appeared to him on eight different occasions throughout the course of his life and gave him new teachings. And this is their way of insulating themselves against biblical criticism. And they'll say, well, if you can't find what I'm teaching you in the Bible, uh, don't worry about it, you see, because I have it from the highest authority. Jesus himself came and gave me these teachings. So if you can't find it in the Word, don't worry about it. It's okay. I got it from Jesus. And on one of these eight visitations, according to Hagen, Jesus showed up and gave him these exact words. According to Kenneth Hagin, Jesus physically showed up and dictated to him these exact words. It's interesting, however, that Jesus apparently bears a striking resemblance to Essek W. Kenyon. If you can see, it's practically word for word identical. Hagin did not get this from Jesus. Hagin plagiarized Essek W. Kenyon among other authors as well. And the plagiarism is quite extensive. This is just all I could fit on the screen. Uh, but it's quite voluminous. So the faith preachers are very fond of claiming divine origin for what they teach. But as you can see, the origins are not nearly so supernatural. I want us now to begin looking at the doctrines of the word faith movement. We'll begin by looking at the doctrine known as positive confession. The faith preachers teach that if you are a Christian, then uh, you can speak things into existence. Watch these clips. Look at me, say, 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 all, all of you, say, there's power in me, power in me. To, speak life and death. to speak life and death. You call what you have, you say what you want. And I'm here to tell you, I know that I know that I know that as these programs are airing, I am speaking something into existence. Amen. I'm speaking something into existence. If that sounds eerily like God's act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that's because it is. Dear friends, only God can speak things into existence. That is not an ability that you and I have. But the faith preachers blur what should be a very crisp line of distinction between God the Creator and us His created. They demote God to make Him look more human than what He is, and then in turn they deify man 
and they make us look a lot more like God than what we really are. Now, in case you're thinking, oh, well, you know, surely, Justin, you're just taking these people out of context. They don't actually teach that we can speak things into existence just like God did. I mean, surely they don't really teach that, do they? Well, um, yeah, they do. This is a tweet from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar, by the way, undoubtedly is the most aptly named of the prosperity preachers. But this from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar says, As spiritual beings who possess the nature of God, we have the ability to speak things into existence just like God did. So yes, they do teach this. Yes, they absolutely do. This from T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes says this, That word of God is how God procreates. It's how God regenerates. I didn't know God was getting tired, but apparently. And that's why once you get in the word of God, you've got to be careful what you speak to because the power of life and death is in your tongue. Is this true? Do we have the power of life and death in our tongues? Is there any Bible to support this? Well, upon first consideration, might would seem that there is. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Wow. Well, it does seem to say that, doesn't it? Well, as is common with the faith preachers, they take verses of Scripture out of their context. Sometimes they don't even quote to you the entire verse. And actually with Proverbs 18.21, they're making both mistakes. Let's look at the entire verse. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. So you see, when you read the whole verse, it doesn't say exactly what the faith preachers claim that it does. In fact, let me show you what Alan Ross says of this verse in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. He says, Those who enjoy talking, indulging in it, must bear its fruit, whether good or bad. The lesson is to be warned, especially if you love to talk. This is a proverb. And this proverb is saying if you are one of those people who's a little too loose with the lips and, and you like to engage in gossip, uh, you better be ready to bear the consequences of that because there will be some. Do words have uh, the ability to impact people? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and James warns us about the dangers of the unbridled tongue. So absolutely. But can we literally speak things into existence? No, not at all. That is not something that we can do. The Hebrew word for create is bara, and only God baras. That is something that only God can do. Listen to this audio clip, conversation between Kenneth Copeland and Paul and Jan Crouch. Paul Crouch now um, dead. But listen to this from Kenneth Copeland, Paul and Jan Crouch. Does God use faith? Surely. Now, now see, here's a sore spot. There are those not with who him. say. No, not, not with you. No, no, no. <laughs> not with God. I'm the fact, I'm not sore at God at all, and I don't think he's sore at me. I don't know. I haven't done anything to him. No, but the, the critics say God is God. He doesn't have to have faith. He doesn't exercise faith. He doesn't use faith. He's God. He's the object of faith. Oh, wait a minute. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. I Did you catch that? Kenneth Copeland said, now wait a minute. What does that mean, God's the object of our faith? I don't know what that means. And then you hear Jan Crouch say, well, I don't either. 
Friends, that's not meat. That's milk. The fact that God is the object of our faith, that's first grade Sunday school stuff. I mean, you don't get more basic than that. That's ground level. That's Christianity 101. And these people who claim to be our leaders in Christianity don't understand the elementary truth that God is the object of our faith. Because, you see, in the prosperity gospel, God is not the object of faith. Faith is the object of faith. You see, in the prosperity gospel, faith is not placed in God. Faith is a force that you direct at God to make him do whatever you want him to do. And it's really ironic when you think about it that these people who call themselves faith preachers don't even know what faith is. They have a fundamental misunderstanding of what faith actually is. And once again, in case you think I'm taking these people out of context, oh, they don't really teach that you should have faith in your faith. I mean, they don't actually come out and say that, do they? Um, Yeah, they do. This from Jesse Duplantis in Voice of the Covenant magazine, March 2014. He says, the Bible says that every man has been given the measure of faith. Have faith in your faith, not faith in God, have faith in your faith and step over into the faith zone, whatever that is. How powerful are our words? Well, so powerful that uh, if you don't like the weather, well, you can just change it. Watch this from Gloria Copeland. You know, you're, the, you're supposed to control the weather. I mean, Ken's the primary weatherman at our house, but when he's not there, I do it. You can see what's happening out there. It shows just like they have on at the weather, like on the news. I mean, he's got the computers, got the current weather on it and all that for flying. So uh, sometimes I'll hear something. I'll hear the thunder start. Maybe he'll still be asleep. And I'll say, Ken, you need to do something about this. <laughs> and knowing that. But you are the one that has authority over the weather. One day, Ken and Pat Boone, well, we were in Hawaii at their house, and we were, they were sitting outside, and there was a weather spout out over the ocean. And that's like a tornado, except it hits the water. And so they were sitting there, and they just watched it, rebuked it, it never did anything. One day, I was in the airplane in the back, and my little brother was in the back with me, and Ken was up front flying, and we were not in the weather, because we don't fly bad weather. But we, we could see the weather over here. And I looked out the window, and that tornado came down just like this, down toward the ground. And Ken said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You get back up there. So this is how I learned how to talk to tornadoes. I saw this. And that tornado went, whoop, 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 whoop. Even while I was watching, and my little brother was not a devout Christian at that time, and that was really good for him to see. So you're the weatherman. You get out there, or the weather woman, whichever it is, and you talk to that thing, and you tell it, you're not coming here, I command you to dissipate, and you get back up there in Jesus' name. Glory to God. That, that, I won't charge you extra. Now, that doesn't really even need or deserve a comment, but if you'll indulge me, I'll offer a couple of comments just briefly. The first thing did you notice how she says we can control the weather, but, but we don't fly in bad weather? Why not? I mean, if, if you can control the weather, fly through whatever you want to fly through. 
So, you know, honestly, just a little common sense goes a long way in clearing a lot of this stuff up. Just a little common sense. But on a little bit more serious note, if it is true, and that's a huge if, but if it is true that Gloria Copeland and all of her faith friends can control the weather, and by the way, they all claim to be able to do this. Rod Parsley says he can do it. Creflo Dollar says he can do it. Jesse Duplantis says he can do it. If they can control the weather, then I would submit to you that these prosperity preachers should be charged with thousands of cases of negligent homicide every year. Thousands of cases of negligent homicide every year. Because every year, all around the world, there are thousands of people who lose their lives in weather-related disasters. Tornadoes, hurricanes. I mean, Hurricane Patricia just last night rolled into Mexico. Where were they? Uh, blizzards, droughts, mudslides, uh, wildfires that could be put out with some rain, on and on and on. So if the prosperity preachers can control the weather, but they just choose not to do so because they're either too lazy or too narcissistic, then I would submit that they should be charged with thousands of cases of negligent homicide. But you know, I'm not really that hard-nosed because I don't actually think that the prosperity preachers should really be charged with negligent homicide. And the reason I don't is because they can't do what they say they can do. They can't control the weather. They're liars. There's only one who can control the weather. This from John Hagee. John Hagee? He's not word of faith, is he? Oh, yes, he is. John Hagee says, I believe that when a person says, I wish I were dead, he or she invites the spirit of death to invade his or her life. When an unhappy wife says, my marriage is a failure, she has pronounced the doom of this relationship. When a pregnant mother says, I don't want this baby, she is pronouncing the termination of her pregnancy or a curse upon the life of a child yet to be born. Speech is that powerful. Is it really? So according to John Hagee, if a pregnant mother, for whatever reason, simply verbalizes the words, I don't want this baby, she can kill her baby in utero. Where is the sovereignty of God in all this? Where is the sovereignty of God? The prosperity preachers have no concept of God's sovereignty. None. The God of the prosperity gospel, little g God, is a very weak, very indecisive, very effeminate God, and it is not the God of the Bible. It is not the God of the Bible. By the way, this whole blood moons thing by John Hagee, you know, here we are on the other side of all those blood moons, and guess what? We're still here. By the way, two of those blood moons, you know, John Hagee made a lot of money off this blood moons thing. Do you know two of those blood moons were not even visible from Israel? And yet they were supposed to be assigned to Israel. Couldn't even see them in Israel. It's a bunch of nonsense. That's for free. You remember the account of the angel giving the announcement to Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, in Luke's gospel that they were going to have a baby? Remember this? And uh, they were advanced in years. And when Zechariah heard this, he questioned it a little bit, did he not? And what did God do in response to Zacharias' questioning? Closed his mouth, right? Made him a mute. 
for a very interesting take on why God closed Zechariah's mouth, this from Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen said this. He says, why did God take away his speech? It's because God knew that Zechariah's negative words would cancel out his plan. See, God knows the power of our words. He knows that we prophesy our future, and he knew Zechariah's own negative words would stop his plan. Wow. So according to Joel Osteen, God was up in heaven looking down, and he saw Zechariah making negative confessions, and God just went into a panic. Oh, my goodness, what, what am I ever going to do? I, I wasn't counting on this. And so in a last-ditch effort to save his plan of redemption... God had to reach down and close Zechariah's mouth and make him a mute. Whew. Boy, that was, that was a close one. Unbelievable. No concept of God's sovereignty. None whatsoever. In fact, they have a almost, an almost palpable disdain for the sovereignty of God. A palpable disdain for it. Recall how I've been saying that the prosperity gospel is not Christian. It's, it's rooted in the metaphysical cults, and what we're seeing today is just cultic theology wrapped in a little Christianese. Here's an interesting example. A buddy of mine was in a, I believe it was a Barnes & Nobles two or three years ago, and he was in the New Age section of Barnes & Nobles, and he came across this book titled Supreme Influence, subtitle, Change Your Life with the Power of the Language You Use. Now, this is not a Christian book. It doesn't pretend to be Christian. It was in the New Age section of Barnes & Nobles. This is New Age. Now, for comparison, let me show you a Christian book by Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer's book, Change Your Words, Change Your Life, Understanding the Power of Every Word You Speak. You see, it's the same thing. This is not Christian. This is Cultic. It's New Age. It's cultic doctrine wrapped in a little Christian lingo. But there's nothing Christian about it. Speaking things into existence, something that only God can do, good segue into our next doctrine, the little God's doctrine. All of the prosperity preachers teach that if you are a Christian, you are in fact a little God. Watch this video clip of Creflo Dollar as he talks about Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Now, in verse 26 and verse 27, God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind. And in verse 26 and 27, let's read it out loud. Ready? Read. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. And if God now produces man and everything produces after his own kind, 
If horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this. But I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. The real me is just like God. The real me is just like God. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Dear friends, when the Bible says that God created man in his image, that means that as human beings, you and I are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the pinnacle of his creation. And we have the potential and the capacity through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to know God. None of the other created order has that privilege and ability. We are the pinnacle of his creation. And I don't care what PETA says, you and I are of infinite more value than anteaters and aardvarks. We have the capacity through Christ to know God. None of the other created order has that ability. I love dogs. I do. I grew up with black labs and I love dogs. Uh, not real fond of cats, but I do like dogs. But the greatest, smartest dog in the world will never know God because dogs are not created in God's image. But we are. We are. And we have that potential and capacity through Christ, through the regenerating work of God's Holy Spirit to know God, but that does not mean that we are God. The Bible is very clear. There is only one God. There is only one God, and he is a jealous God who will not share his glory with another. And if I remember my Bible correctly, wasn't the desire to be just like God kind of what led to this whole fall thing in the first place? Isn't that ironic? The very first temptation, which led to the very first sin, sin the, the desire to be just like God and rise up and be in equality with God is, is the very thing that led to this whole fallen state in the first place. And yet the prosperity preachers teach it as truth. They want you to believe it. How ironic. How dreadfully ironic. Who else in the Bible wanted to be just like God? Satan. Lucifer, he wanted to be just like God. He wanted all the power, all the authority, and he rose up in rebellion against God, and it got him and a third of the angels along with him kicked out of heaven. And so the little God's doctrine is quite literally, quite literally, a doctrine of demons. And yet the prosperity preachers want you to believe it. They want you to embrace it. The very thing that led to this whole fallen state in the first place. 
I want us to look at the doctrine of the fall. And this is going to help us to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together, why they teach what they teach. So let's look at this, Word, Faith, New Apostolic Reformation teachings on the fall. Number one, the faith preachers teach that Adam was an exact duplicate of God. He was not a little like God. He was not a lot like God. That he was God. God literally reproduced himself in Adam. And according to the faith preachers, Adam could stand toe-to-toe with God and have no consciousness of inferiority whatsoever. Adam was another Yahweh. Well, we all know what happened, right? Adam sinned, which, of course, begs the question. If Adam was Yahweh and he sinned, was it Yahweh who sinned? You see, you carry these doctrines out to their logical conclusion, and you see how very dark and heretical they really are. But when Adam sinned, he lost his godhood, lost his deity, transferred it to Satan. When this happened, the real Yahweh God lost his legal right to planet earth and was kicked out. Gone. See you later. And according to classic word faith theology, you'll find little nuances here and there, but classic word faith theology, the real Yahweh God is up there somewhere, but he's got no access to planet earth. Gone. See you later. Bye. Do they really teach this? Yes, they do. This from Kenneth Copeland. March... 29th of this year, 2015, Copeland says, but when he turned, referring to Adam, and he gave that dominion to Satan, look where it left God. It left him, God, on the outside looking in. He can't do anything down there. He had no legal right to do anything about it. Could he manipulate and operate? No, because he'd be doing the very same thing that Satan did in the first place. And if God had injected himself illegally into the earth, What Satan intended for him to do was to fall for it, pull off an illegal act and turn the light off in God and subordinate God to himself. Now you can see the complicated predicament that God's in. You can understand why someone would say, wonder why God lets all those wars go on. He doesn't. There's not anything he can do about it. Poor old God on the outside looking in. Nothing he can do. Well, according to the faith preachers, if God has been kicked out of planet Earth as illegal, somebody has to fill that void, right? Satan, all too eager to step up to the plate, and Satan becomes the legal God of planet Earth. And as I said earlier, Satan is not the legal God of planet Earth. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the Apostle Paul does refer to Satan as the God of this age. That's a better rendering than world. He's the God of this age. Paul was making a theological point, not a legal point. Paul was basically saying that this world is so fallen, so sinful, so depraved that it follows after Satan as if he were the God of this age, but not the legal God of planet Earth. God is the legal God of planet Earth. The Earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Well, according to the prosperity preachers, guess what happens when a person gets saved? Guess what he gets back? Ah, he gets his godhood back. He regains his deity. He becomes God again, just like Adam was before he fell. And this, dear ones, is why the faith preachers hold so tenaciously to health and wealth. 
because we're gods. And a god cannot be poor. And a god certainly cannot be sick. You see, so many people think that this movement is just about health and wealth. Rolex watches, private jets, healing. No, that's those things, health and wealth, that's just some of the bad fruit, the bad low-hanging fruit that comes off of a tree that is rotten at its theological core. It's far more involved, far more heretical than just an emphasis on prosperity, health and wealth. The, the, the theological tree of the word faith movement is rotten at its core, and its fruit is also rotten. Its fruit is also rotten. This from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar tweeted this recently. He said, Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. Did you know that? That's why Jesus came and died on the cross, so we can be rich, so we can be healed. The prosperity gospel essentially says this, come to Jesus because you can be wealthy and you'll never have to be sick anymore. So let me get this straight. So you're telling me that if I come to Jesus, if I ask Jesus into my heart, um, I can be wealthy and I'll never have to be sick again? Yeah. Sign me up. You know, I, I like that Jesus. Yeah, that, that, that sounds great. I like that Jesus. So if I just come to Christ, if I become a Christian, I can be rich, never have to be sick anymore. Well, you know what? There's about 7 billion people on this planet who want those things. The vast majority of people want to be wealthy. And the vast majority of people don't want to be sick. There's a few people out there just like the attention that comes with getting sick. But most people, if they had their druthers, they'd rather not be sick. And so the prosperity gospel says, if you'll just come to Jesus, then you can have it. They appeal to two of the most basic and universal of all human desires. Come to Jesus, have all the money you need, all the money you want, and you'll never have to be sick. Sounds like a pretty good deal. But is that the real gospel? Or is the real gospel something a little bit more like this? Come to Jesus because you're a sinner. And because of your sin, the wrath of God abides on you. And the only way to have that wrath removed is to repent of sins, turn from sins, and place your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. And then you will have heaven. You will be saved. But on this earth, we're not promised money. We're not promised healing. What are we promised? We're promised tribulation. We're promised persecution. What does the Bible say? Some of those who live godly in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. Is that what it says? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Mm, that's not as popular, you see. It's saying come to Jesus because you can be rich, 
You won't have to be sick anymore. Friends, if you come to Jesus for those reasons, you've come for the wrong reasons. You have responded to a different gospel. And by the way, there are no adjectives to the gospel. There is no prosperity gospel. There is no social gospel. Thank you very much, Tony Campolo. If you have to add an adjective to the gospel, then you've got a different gospel. There is just the gospel. No adjectives to the gospel. The softening of sin. If you listen to these prosperity preachers for very long, you might notice that they don't talk about sin a whole lot. Joel Osteen, by his own admission, never preaches on sin. Uh, and even the ones that do, uh, they might mention it, but they really soften it. They soften sin. But it's not just the prosperity preachers who soften sin. A lot of uh, evangelical celebrities do it as well. Rick Warren. Watch this video clip of Rick Warren being interviewed by Sean Hannity. Christmas time. Yeah, well, if, you got, if you got two doors, one says this one goes to life with eternity with God. Right. And this one says eternity without God. Right. If I walk out the door that says eternity without God, do I blame God for that? No. That's right. my choice. Right. That's my choice. And so I choose to, re to, to go to hell. Mm -hmm. You have to do almost the impossible. What you have to do, you have to reject the grace of but, Jesus but Christ. Doesn't... Rick Warren says, to go to hell, you've got to do almost the impossible. That is shockingly unbiblical. Rick Warren says to go to hell, you've got to do almost, it's almost impossible to go to hell? Really? Well, it seems to me Jesus said something a little bit different, did he not? The disciples were even more astonished and said to Jesus, then who can be saved? Jesus says, with men it is impossible, but not with God. So Rick Warren says to go to hell, uh, it's almost impossible. Jesus Christ says, uh, apart from God, it's impossible to go to heaven. So uh, who are you going to believe, Rick Warren or Jesus Christ? I don't know. That is unbelievable. Dear friends, the reality is, is that everybody, everybody is running to hell just as fast as their little fallen feet will carry them because that's what they want. People love their sin. They hate the light. They love the sin. And so they're running to hell as fast as they can go. And God in his mercy is reaching out and plucking some from eternal destruction. Diametrically opposed to the gospel. Rick Warren is a false teacher, and not just because of this one little clip. Rick Warren, Rick Warren is a theological chameleon. Rick Warren is whoever his audience is on that particular occasion. When Rick Warren is with Word of Faith preachers, as he was in the year 2006, preaching at the centennial celebration of the Azusa Street Revival where the charismatic movement began, uh, Rick Warren is Word of Faith when he's with Word of Faith people. When he's with Roman Catholics, he's Roman Catholic. When he's with certain Reformed preachers, he's reading the Puritans, these doctrines of grace. 
when he's speaking at the national, uh, when, when he's speaking at the North American Islamic Society, the North American Islamic Society in the year 2009 as their keynote speaker, that tells you a lot about Rick Warren right there, that the North American Islamic Society would have Rick Warren come in and be their keynote speaker at their convention, that tells you right off the bat a lot about Rick Warren. Can you imagine the North American Islamic Society inviting John MacArthur to be their keynote speaker? Not in a million years. But they'll have Rick Warren come in, and when Rick Warren is there, Allah and Yahweh are the same God. Do you know Rick Warren has signed a document entitled the Yale document that actually, basically, it says that Allah and Yahweh are the same God because this document affirms that both Christians and Muslims love God? And so that, call it what you will, that says Allah and Yahweh are the same God. Rick Warren has signed it. Muslims don't love God. They have a false God. Their God doesn't even exist. They don't love God. But Rick Warren has signed that document. So if that's not a false teacher, then I don't know what one is. Softening of sin. Watch this video clip from Joseph Prince. Now this is tricky because um, Joseph Prince is going to say some things here that are right. And so we're going to have to be Bereans, search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Watch this from Word Faith Preacher, Prosperity Preacher, Joseph Prince. To do this, but you're getting the same kind of response, aren't you? People yes. need and, and want. You know, the word repentance, uh, like Joel said, is from the Greek word metanoia, which literally means change your mind. And uh, every time, like Joel or, or me preaching the word, without using the word repentance sometimes, but people's minds are being changed all the time. From thinking this way negatively to thinking positively. So Joseph Prince says that uh, the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. And you know what? He's right. That is the Greek word for repentance. And then he says the word metanoia means to change your mind. Guess what? Right again. That is what that word means. But then did you notice how he fleshed it out? He said, uh, speaking of Joel Osteen, he said, we may not use the word repentance. I mean, heaven forbid we actually use biblical terminology in our preaching. You know, you wouldn't want to do that. So we may not use the word repentance, but we still teach people to repent all of the time. He said, when they go from thinking negatively to thinking positively. That's not Repentance. According to his definition of repentance, we could all repent simply by joining the Optimist Club. You know, just having a sunnier outlook on life. You know, everything's just sunshine and lollipops all the time. That's not repentance. Repentance is a change in mind, but repentance comes when God grants repentance. Genuine repentance is granted by God, and when God grants repentance, yes, our minds will be changed, but everything about us will be changed. Our affections will be changed. How we look at sin will change. And when God grants repentance, there will be fruit in our lives in keeping with repentance. The Apostle Paul, speaking to King Agrippa, he said, So, King Agrippa, I kept declaring that all people should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. 
Does this mean we perform deeds in order to repent? No, that's getting the cart before the horse. But when God grants repentance, there will be deeds. There will be fruit in keeping with that. John the Baptist, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Genuine repentance is not seeing the glass half full. That is not what repentance is. So it's not enough just to use some of the right lingo. It's how you flesh that out. In fact, I was speaking with someone just yesterday, and uh, uh, Stephen, I believe it was, Stephen was telling me that uh, this church actually had a, a good doctrinal statement. You look at their doctrinal statement, it's a pretty good doctrinal statement. But then uh, came out and uh, the pastor is in favor of homosexual marriage. But they got a pretty good doctrinal statement. You have to be careful. I like doctrinal statements. I like detailed doctrinal statements. Those are helpful, but they're not in and of themselves enough to know whether or not somebody's orthodox. Listen to how they teach. It's not enough to use some of the right lingo. How do they flesh it out? How do they handle God's word? Joseph Prince is a false teacher. Watch this video clip from Benny Hinn and Miles Monroe. Pastor, we get the mind of God about his will, we pray it. When we pray it, we give him legal right to perform it. Yes. Let me define prayer for you in this show. Prayer is man giving God permission or license to interfere in earth's affairs. In other words, prayer is earthly license for heavenly interference. That's incredible. That is incredible. God could do nothing on earth, nothing has God ever done on earth without a human giving him access. So he's always looking for that somebody. Always looking for a human to give him power, permission. In other words, God has the power, but you get the permission. God got the authority and the power, but you got the license. So even though God could do anything, he can only do what you permit him to do. God can only do what we permit him to do. Dear friends, I would submit to you this morning that God can do whatever he jolly well wants to do and is not terribly concerned about whether or not he has our permission to do it. Don't take my word for it. Let's be good Bereans. Let's search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But do you know I actually had a word faith person one time speaking of that verse. This person said, oh yeah, but that just means God can do whatever he wants to do in heaven, not on earth. If he wants to do something on the earth, he has to get our permission. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all of the deeps. Oops. Friends, God can do whatever he wants to do. And he is not losing a great deal of anthropomorphic sleep over whether or not he has our permission to do it. He can do whatever he wants to do. And I take no joy in what I'm about to tell you. That video clip of Benny Hinn and Miles Monroe, um, about this time last year, November of 2014, I believe it was November 2014, 
Miles Monroe and his wife and at least one, if not two, of his children were killed when his private jet went down, crashed. I don't think God needed Miles Monroe's permission to bring that plane down. Have you ever noticed the titles of some of their books and videos, how man-centered they are? Whether it's a book, whether it's a video, television program, the, even the titles are of what they do very, very man-centered. I want to show you one example, or a few examples from one person, Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen's first book, Runaway Bestseller, what was, what was it called? Your Best Life Now. Your best life now. Do you see how man-centered that is? You can have your best life, and you can have it right now. See the man-centered approach? Now let's think about this. For whom would this be true? Is this true for Christians? No. We're not having our best life now. This is not our best life. Our best life is not this side of heaven. Our best life is on the other side of heaven, not here. So for whom else would this be true? Well, lost people. If a person dies in his or her sin, yep, they're having their best life now. This is as good as it's going to get for them. And you know what? For us as Christians, this is as bad as it's going to get for us. But your best life now. His second book, I don't even know really why there would be a need for a second book. I mean, if you're already having your best life and you're having it right now, I'm not real sure how you improve upon that. But apparently there is room for some improvement because he wrote another book, Become a Better You. Become a Better You. See the man-centered approach? Is this a biblical concept? Well, who does the Bible say that we are? Well, the Bible says that we're sinners, right? We're lawbreakers. We are liars. Thieves, blasphemers, adulterers at heart at least. So are we to become better liars, better thieves, better blasphemers, better adulterers at heart? No. We're not to become better people. We are to become new people, uh, new creatures in Christ. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. So even the title is not biblical. His next book, It's Your Time. Whose time is it? Is it God's time? No, nope, not God's time. It's your time. See the man-centered approach? His next book, Every Day's a Friday. Let's just all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and dream about lollipops and rainbows. Every Day's a Friday. His most recent book, the one that has just been released, and honestly, this one, this one makes me mad. The power of I am. You know what this book is about? You are, to, you are to make positive confessions over your life using the name of God, I am. And you are to say positive things about yourself. I am blessed. I am talented. I am all of that in a bag of chips. Using the name of God for yourself. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. It, it, it is, everything's man-centered. And just as a general rule of thumb, somebody may be able to 
prove me wrong on this. I don't think so, though. Just as a general rule of thumb, if, if you're considering buying a book from some Christian author and you're not sure is this a good guy or a bad guy or a good gal or a bad gal or whatever, just as a general rule of thumb, if you happen to notice that all of the books that they write, uh, the covers of these books are emblazoned with a big mugshot of themselves, pretty good indication you probably shouldn't be reading that book. <laughs> just as a general rule of thumb. Watch this video clip from Jesse Duplantis. Jesse Duplantis. Friends have frank and open conversations with each other. I've done that with the Lord. I've had the Lord say, uh, Jesse, I've had God come tell me, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I've had the Lord say, what do you think about this? God has asked me for my opinion. God asks Jesse Duplantis for his opinion? Are you serious? Now, let's not take him out of context. Let's let him finish his thought. Proceed, Mr. Duplantis. I said, well, Lord, since you ask, maybe I'm doing it. He said, no, we can talk frankly. What do you think? I said, well, I don't think you ought to do that. He said, why you don't think I ought to do that? I said, well, you know, and I know you know people more than I do, but you know, Lord, if you just let me, let me do a little bit more work on this individual, I think we can get them to you. He says, okay, go ahead. Do what you have to do. And I tell you what, the Bible says, he who wins souls is wise. And he who thinks he can counsel God is a fool. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? The answer to these rhetorical questions, according to Scripture, is obviously no. But Jesse Duplantis, oh yeah, he thinks he can be God's counselor. He thinks God seeks him out for direction. Jesse Duplantis thinks that he can inform the Alpha and Omega. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. The arrogance of these people knows no bounds. Watch this video clip from Jesse Duplantis. I'm, I'm going to say something going to knock your lights off. God has the power to take life, but he can't. He's got the power to do it, but he won't. He's bound. He can't. He says death and life is in the power of whose tongue? Yours. You ready for this? You want something to knock your lights off? You choose when you live. You choose when you die. So God has the power to take life, but he can't. I think that might come as a bit of a surprise to a number of people in the Bible. Remember King Herod when God killed him and he was eaten by worms? Um, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, remember Uzzah? Remember when the, they were walking along and the Ark of the Covenant was on the cart being pulled by the oxen and the oxen stumbled? And, and you can see this in your mind's eye, can't you? I mean, you can see exactly how it happened. When the, when the cart tilted and Uzzah was walking right beside the Ark, 
and just instinctively, without even thinking, undoubtedly, just Uzzah just reached up to steady the ark, and God struck him dead. You think God isn't holy? Who else would disagree with Mr. Duplantis? Well, and let's think. Oh, yeah, everybody alive on the face of the earth in that little flood thing, except for eight people. I'm betting they would beg to differ with Jesse Duplantis. They have a different God. Their God is not the God of the Bible. Their God is not the God of the Bible. Neither is their Jesus the Jesus of the Bible. I want us now to look at what the faith preachers teach about the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we can establish that they preach a different Jesus, we can establish that they do indeed preach a different gospel. Many of the faith preachers hold to what is essentially an Arianistic view of Christ. Arianism was a heresy in the early church. Basically, Arianism held that Jesus did not come as God. Jesus just came as a man, a man who had a very close walk with God but was not actually the only begotten of God the Father, God in human flesh. Uh, they, it, they held that Jesus was a man, or Arianism held that Jesus was a man. This from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar said, and somebody said, well, Jesus came as God. Well, how many of you know the Bible says God never sleeps nor slumbers? And yet in the book of Mark, we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. Jesus came as a man. And in age 30, God is now getting ready to demonstrate to us and give us an example of what a man with the anointing can do. Y'all, please listen to me. Please listen to me. This ain't no heresy. I'm not some false prophet. As a general rule of thumb, dear ones, if a preacher actually has to tell you that he's not a false prophet, <laughs> chances are. Chances are. But Creflo Dollar says that because God does not sleep or slumber, and yet Mark's gospel records for us that Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat, that therefore Jesus could not have been God. But that's ridiculous. Dear friends, when Jesus came to this earth, he came as fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. The, the theanthropic person of Christ, the God-man. And as the God-man, Jesus experienced many of the same things that you and I experience. He got hungry. He got thirsty. And guess what? He got sleepy. It does not mean that he was not God. That is ridiculous. And notice... Creflo Dollar says that God is now getting ready to demonstrate to us and give us an example of what a man with the anointing can do. Guess who they teach, or what they teach that you and I are. They teach that you and I are men and women with the anointing. We've been given the anointing. Therefore, we're gods, just like Jesus. After he got his anointing, he wasn't God from the get-go, no, he later became God. We later become. We become gods when we supposedly get saved. Little gods. We're just like Jesus. Jesus is just one of us. We're one of him. You know, it's no distinction. And they actually teach that. There is no distinction, they say, between the Christian and the Son of God. In fact, they actually teach, this is a direct quote They actually, from Essex W. Kenyon, direct quote, the Christian is just as much in incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth, end quote. 
Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Watch this from Kenneth Copeland. And Jesus volunteered to go to hell. I'm going to tell you something. Ain't nobody ever got out of there. The only thing he had to go by was the promise of God that I'm reading you right now. He didn't have some special revelation from heaven between he and God the Father. No, the Bible said he emptied himself when he came and he saw himself in the word and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He found himself in the word. So according to Kenneth Copeland, Jesus was just a man, just a man who walked into the synagogue one day and opened up the scriptures and started reading through the scriptures and going along. And all of a sudden he said, well, I'll be John Brown. Look, look here. Look, look who I am. He had no idea who he was. He just found himself in the Word. You see, there was no special relationship between Jesus and God the Father. He just found himself in the Word. Dear friends, that is a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. If they preach a different Jesus, they preach a different gospel. But notice Kenneth Copeland said that Jesus emptied himself. Did you catch that? I want to flesh that out just a little bit. Did Jesus empty himself? Did he? Yes, he did. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. So the Bible does indeed say that Jesus emptied himself. Now the question is, of what did he empty himself? The prosperity preachers say that Jesus emptied himself of his deity. He was no longer God, just a man. Is that what this means? No, no, no. Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. Now, some people would say, well, Jesus emptied himself of some of his divine attributes. Be very careful with that. God is the summation of his attributes, right? He's the summation of his attributes. If you take away one of God's attributes, do you still have God? No. You can't have... 93% God or whatever. You, you, it, it's an all or nothing deal. So if you take away even one of God's attributes, then you no longer have God. But a lot of people say, well, Jesus did not have omniscience when he was on earth because of that statement that he made of that day and hour. No one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Remember that? And a lot of people take that verse to mean that Jesus did not know some things. Well, be careful with that because, again, you take away God's, Jesus' omniscience, he's no longer God. You can't, you can't remove one or more of his attributes and still have God. Now, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let's look at another text, Gospel of John. The disciples said this to Christ. The disciples said to Jesus, now we know that you know all things. Now, if Jesus did not know all things... What a great opportunity for Jesus to do what? To correct their theology, right? What a great opportunity for, for Jesus to say, now, now hold on, guys. I can understand how you would think I know all things. Um, I used to, before I came to this earth, when I was in heaven, I did then, 
One day in the future, I will again, but right now, I don't. Right now, I don't. Great opportunity for Jesus to correct their theology. In fact, if he did not correct their theology and they were wrong and he really didn't know all things and he didn't correct their theology, that, that, you run into some real problems there. Well, that would be Jesus being dishonest. Did Jesus correct their theology? No, he did not. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Do you now believe? He didn't correct them. He affirmed them. Do you now believe? So Jesus was saying, yes, I do know all things. I am omniscient. So what do we do with that statement that he made? Of that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. What do we do with that? Well, this is where Philippians 2 comes in. Jesus did not empty himself of his deity, nor did Jesus empty himself of any of his divine attributes. But on occasion, Jesus emptied himself of his divine prerogative to exercise some of those attributes. It does not mean that he did not have them. It does not mean that he did not have access to the information, if you will. It just means that on occasion, Jesus chose not to exercise some of his attributes. He emptied himself of his divine prerogative to exercise some of those attributes. The following is a prophecy given to Kenneth Copeland, supposedly from Jesus himself. According to Kenneth Copeland, Jesus showed up to him one day and said this to him. Don't be disturbed when people accuse you of thinking you are God. They crucified me for claiming that I was God, but I didn't claim I was God. I just claimed that I walked with him. He was in me. Hallelujah. That's what you're doing. Heresy. Heresy. Blasphemy. Jesus most certainly did claim to be God. Before Abraham was, I am. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus most certainly did claim to be God. He, he did things that only God can do. He raised the dead. He forgave sins. In any Jesus that he is preaching, Kenneth Copeland is preaching, who did not claim to be God is not the Jesus of the Bible. If they preach a different Jesus, they preach a different gospel. Never to be outdone with himself. This also from Kenneth Copeland. And I say this with all respect, so it don't upset you too bad, but I say it anyway. When I read in the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and I say, I am too. Unbelievable. The fact that these people have not been struck dead is a testimony to the forbearance of God. Absolutely unreal. Watch this video clip of Larry Huck and Paula White. And the volume on this is a little low. We might want to bump up the volume on this clip just a tad. We really begin to understand that, that, that when Jesus Christ paid the price, the first thing that happened after he said it is finished is the veil was rent from top to bottom, signifying that no man could do that. But the price that was paid was there's now no separation. So that we have direct access in the Holy of Holies. We understand, according to Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest. Absolutely. And he's the first of many brethren, which means I now come into a priestly anointing. So I now can... Say that again because now, they don't get it. I now come into a priestly anointing. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. He is not. I'm a son of he's God. He's the first fruit. You, you're the, he's the first fruit. He's the first born of many. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. 
Can you believe that? Flat out denying that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God? Have they read John 3.16? Unreal. Dear friends, we're not talking here about minor issues. You know, we're not talking here about who you think wrote the book of Hebrews. We're not talking about uh, when you think the date of the Exodus was. These issues go to the heart of the gospel. What one believes about Jesus will determine where one spends eternity. This from Victoria Osteen, Joel Osteen's wife. You see, Jesus walked this earth in a human body. He was man. He was God made flesh. The Bible says he was tempted and tried in every way, just like we are, but he overcame. See, Jesus was man until God touched him and put the spirit of the living God on the inside of him. And that's encouraging today. No, that's heretical today. So Jesus was just a man until God touched him, put his spirit on the inside of him. That's an old Christological heresy known as, it's basically adoptionism. That's, that's an old heresy, and, and, and yet the faith preachers hold on to it. They hold on to Arianism. They hold on to adoptionism. Heresy. If they preach a different Jesus, they preach a different gospel. They preach a different gospel. Dear friends, I'm going to say something that may sound a bit odd at first, but please bear with me. It's not enough to just believe in Jesus. It's not enough to just believe in Jesus. Mormons believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. Hey, Muslims believe in Jesus but they do not believe in the right Jesus. They have a different Jesus. They do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. You've got to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And the Word of Faith movement has just as much a different Jesus as does Mormonism, as do the J-dubs, and as do Muslims. You may as well be a Muslim as be Word of Faith. They have a different Christ. They have a different gospel. Watch this video clip from Rod Parsley. Rod Parsley, pastor in Columbus, Ohio, and this is one of those clips that went by really fast. I just happened to be watching TBN. I don't watch, a lot of people think I just sit around all day long and watch TBN. I don't. The thing about Christian television is you don't have to watch it for long before you hear this stuff. I mean, it's just... I, can't, I can hardly sit down and watch it for more than 15 minutes and not see something and think, man, I need to get that in my seminar. Watch this from Rod Parsley. It went by fast, and I had to back it up to think, did I, did I hear what I just thought I heard? Watch this from Rod Parsley. Because when Naaman obeyed that instruction, the miracle of God was released, just like I'm believing with you right now. Somebody's laying hold on a miracle. I can, I can perceive it. I, I can perceive that virtue's going forth out of me. I feel your faith pulling on me right now. Rod Parsley said, I perceive virtue going forth from me. 
You perceive what? Now, when we hear this virtue going forth from me, we automatically think of what? The woman with the issue of blood, right? Who touched the hem of his garment. Jesus said, who touched me? For I perceive virtue has flown out of me, gone out of me. Rod Parsley says he feels virtue going out of him? And then he says, I can feel your faith tugging on me. You feel what? Rod Parsley? You, you Rod Parsley, feel my faith tugging on you? So I guess we should all just ask Rod Parsley to come into our heart. Unbelievable. Dear friends, these people are not Christians. Oh, Justin... Are you saying these people aren't even saved? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. You cannot be indwelt by the third person of the triune God. You cannot be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and teach these kinds of blasphemies. As I said last night, if the Holy Spirit is strong enough to save us, He is also strong enough to deliver us out of deception. And if these people were truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, the first time they uttered one of these horrific blasphemies, the Holy Spirit of God would be screaming at them. And yet they teach these things with wanton abandon. And they have been called on it by me and by others. And yet they continue to teach the same heresies unabated. That is not what a Christian looks like. You cannot teach these kind of heresies, these kind of blasphemies, and be indwelt by the triune God. Not possible. Not possible. I want us now to turn our attention to the spiritual death of Jesus. All of the faith preachers teach this. It began with Essek W. Kenyon. Kenyon reasoned that there had to be two deaths of Christ because sin is a spiritual problem. Kenyon thought that there must have been a spiritual death. He thought that a physical death could not pay for a spiritual problem, and so there had to be two deaths of Christ, one physical and one spiritual. Watch this, or listen to this, rather, from Kenneth Copeland. Jesus had to go through that same spiritual death in order to pay the price. Now, it wasn't the physical death on the cross that paid the price for sin because if it had been, any prophet of God that had died for the last couple of thousand years before that could have paid that price. It wasn't physical death. Anybody can do that. Uh, no, Mr. Copeland, nobody else could have done that because no one else is sinless. Benny Hinn said this. He said, Before he died, I should say on that cross, something happened to him which began the wheels of the new creation moving, and that was this. He died spiritually. Jesus Christ understood that spiritual death is union with the satanic nature. Union with the satanic nature. All of the prosperity preachers teach the spiritual death of Jesus, that when Jesus died on the cross, the work of the atonement had just begun. Then he went to hell. He was tortured by the demons, suffered, ceased to be God, had to be reborn. They actually teach that Jesus had to get saved. All of the prosperity preachers teach this. Joyce Meyer does. Believe it or not, even Joel Osteen has taught this before. 
in an early, early sermon of his. Dear friends, why is this such a dangerous doctrine, the spiritual death of Jesus? If Jesus died spiritually, died spiritually, then that means he ceased to be God. Because God is spirit, right? John chapter 4. God is spirit, and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And so if Jesus died spiritually, and as they put it, the lights went out in Christ, if the lights went out in Christ, if he died spiritually and he ceased to be God, then he never was God to begin with. Because God cannot cease being God. Are there things that God cannot do? Oftentimes we think that God can do anything, right? But are there things that God cannot do? Yes, there are things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot deny himself. God cannot act outside of his character and his nature. God cannot cease to be God. Hebrews 13.8, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. We call that the immutability of God. God, is, God the Father is immutable. God the Son is immutable. God the Holy Spirit immutable. God does not change. And so if there was ever a time when Jesus was not God, then he never was God to begin with because God cannot cease to be God. Cannot cease to be God. Now, some people who would not take this spiritual death of Jesus to the lengths to which the word faith preachers take it, they still kind of have a, a little bit of a softer view on it. And they say that when Jesus died on the cross, he was completely and totally separated from God. Like you cut a ribbon. You cut a ribbon and then you have two ribbons. They say that when Jesus was on the cross, that for the first and only time of all, in all of eternity, the Godhead was split. The Godhead was split. And they use as their support Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus quoted this, of course, on the cross. Now, if Jesus is going to apply this verse to himself, then not only is he applying the verse to himself, but he is applying the context of the passage to himself. Because of all people who would know not to take a verse out of its context is the author of said verse. And so let's look a little bit fuller context here. Look down a few verses in the same chapter, same context, same thought. The psalmist David continues and he says, But be not thou far from me, O Lord, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard heard. David had gotten to this place where he felt like he had been abandoned by God. But even though he felt that way, in reality, you see, he had not been abandoned by God. He says it right here, be not far from me, O Lord. He has not despised, he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. Jesus applied this to himself. And dear friends, when we talk about what happened to Christ on the cross, I think we have to bend our knee. 
And we have to admit that there is a mystery, there is a certain mystery to what Jesus experienced on the cross that we will never fully understand this side of heaven. At some level, we're almost trying to explain the unexplainable. The agony of the cross was physical. It was the flagellation. It was the crown of thorns. It was the nails. It was the thirst. It was all of those things. But it was more than that. It was more than just physical suffering. When Christ was on the cross and he became sin for us, really the, the better rendering of that is he became not sin in and of itself. He did not metamorphosize into sin, but he became a sin offering, as Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says. He became an offering for our sin. But when he was on the cross and he was made an offering for our sin, the full, undiluted wrath of God was poured out on the Son. And Jesus drank in every last drop of it. And so, yes, there was a spiritual element to it. Yes, it was real wrath. And I think in his humanity, undoubtedly, Jesus did feel some level of estrangement, even abandonment, separation by and from God. But in his deity, and, and we can talk about the hypostatic union, we don't divide the person of Christ, no. But in his deity... Jesus was never totally separated from the Father because you cannot, we've already established that God cannot cease to be God. So if, then if you, if you actually split the Godhead, then now we've got two independent coexisting gods. And so we can't have that either. So yes, there is a mystery here. There's a mystery that we will never be able to fully explain and understand this side of heaven. But when you look at this in its fullest context, yes, Jesus felt real estrangement, real abandonment, but it was not a complete and total division of the Godhead. The Bible is quite clear that it was the physical death of Christ that atoned for sins. Many verses we could appeal to. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Peter writes, he says, For Christ also died for sins how many times? Once for all. Not twice, once for all. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but quickened, made alive by the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul, much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We are not saved so that we can have our best life now. We are saved from the wrath of God, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. It was the atonement on the cross that paid for our sins. Something that you'll notice about every cult Every cult disparages the cross of Jesus Christ, that it somehow just was not enough to atone for sin. Mormons disparage it. Jehovah's Witnesses disparage it. Roman Catholicism disparages the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if you're aware, but do you know when Roman Catholics take Mass, 
You know, they call it the sacrifice of the Mass, right? Do you know why they call it the sacrifice of the Mass? Because according to official Roman Catholic doctrine, when they take communion, their own perverted version of it, Mass, and the priest takes the little wafer, what they call the host, little, you know why they call it the host? Because the wafer, basically, it, it is a host. It's a, it's a person. When he takes the host, this little wafer, this little cracker, and he lifts it up, the priest is given power. The priest is given power not to ask Jesus to come out of heaven and get in a little cracker, but to command him to do so. And according to official Roman Catholic doctrine, and you can read this in, in, their, in their doctrinal statements, it says Jesus bows his head in humble obedience to the priest. And Jesus comes out of heaven and he gets into a little cracker. And this cracker literally turns into the flesh of Jesus Christ. Their doctrine of transubstantiation not symbolically his body, really his body. It is the flesh of Christ. And then the priest offers up, lifts up the host, the cracker. And they say, we offer up this victim. Victim? Dear friends, Jesus never was, is not now, nor will he ever be a victim. He is the ultimate victor. Jesus' life was not taken. He gave it. And they, he says, we offer up this victim, and they offer up Christ in sacrifice. They are sacrificing Jesus. To put it real bluntly in layman's terms, you know what they're doing at the Mass? They're killing him. They are killing Jesus. Over and over and over and over, thousands and thousands of times, every day in Roman Catholic churches all around the world, they are sacrificing Christ. And yet, I don't know how the Apostle Peter could have made it more clear. Christ died for sins once for all. And yet, they kill Jesus every day. It's kind of ironic that the Roman Catholic Church is, at least theoretically, pro-life when it comes to abortion. But yet, when it comes to Jesus, they're pro-death. They've got no problem killing him. And Catholics do not believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, according to the Council of Trent, Roman Catholic Council of Trent in the year 1563, the Roman Catholic Church adopted a series of anathemas, a series of doctrines, and they say if you believe these anathemas, you are... Uh, you believe these doctrines, you are anathema. In other words, you are damned and you will go to hell if you believe these things. You know what one of their anathemas is? If you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are anathema. You will go to hell if you believe that. And yet, that's the gospel. And do you know that remains official Roman Catholic doctrine to this day? It has never been rescinded. It's on their books right now. Catholics don't believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They believe you've got to add works to your faith. 
You've got to go to confession, and you've got to confess your sins to a priest who's just as sinful, if not more so, than you are. And then you've got to say your Hail Marys. You've got to say your Our Fathers. You've got, you got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to add works to your faith. And then when you die, then you get to go to purgatory, a place that does not even exist, a place that was invented by the Catholic Church in order to enrich itself. And then you have all your other sins burned off. That is an offense to the gospel. That is a work salvation. That's an offense to the gospel. Roman Catholicism is a cult, theological cult. They have a different gospel. And if we love our Roman Catholic friends and family members, we should love them enough to tell them the truth. I don't hate Roman Catholics, not at all. I love Roman Catholics. But I am diametrically opposed to Roman Catholicism. Why? Because Jesus is. Because it's a different gospel. And we should love our Roman Catholic friends enough to tell them the truth. Show you a tweet from Rick Warren, September 24th, 2015. This is when Pope Francis came to the White House, came to the United States of America. Rick Warren tweeted out, Sunrise at the White House, Pope Francis will join us soon. Rick Warren was all excited about Pope Francis coming to America. In fact, Rick Warren also treated, uh, tweeted, he said, uh, Pope Francis is our Pope. Our Pope? Not my Pope. You know the Catholics refer to the Pope as the Vicar of Christ? You know what they mean by that? That the Pope is the substitute of Christ on earth and has all of the authority that Jesus Christ does. People talk about how humble Pope Francis is. Oh, he's so humble because he doesn't wear the papal red shoes. Dear friends, if you think you are the vicar of Christ on earth, if you think you are Christ's substitute on earth, you ain't humble. I don't care what color your shoes are. Interesting. Just a little addendum here. Rick Warren was waiting for Pope Francis uh, with his good friend T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes is word faith. T.D. Jakes is a modalist. T.D. Jakes does not even believe in the Trinity. You see, Rick Warren is a theological chameleon. He's Roman Catholic. He's word of faith. He's Allah and Yahweh, the same God. Watch this clip. I'm going to show you. I don't know if you heard about this. I'm sure some of you did. Recently, um, there was a prayer gathering over presidential candidate Donald Trump. And I want to show you a little video clip of this prayer service that was held for Donald Trump. Watch, watch this. And it's going to surprise you, uh, a couple of the men who were in this prayer meeting praying for Donald Trump. David Jeremiah, pastor of Shadow Mountain Church, San Diego, California. Robert Jeffress, pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, praying with Donald Trump. The problem is, is that they were also in the very same room praying with Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, 
and Steve Muncy. Steve Muncy is, is, honestly, he's one of the bottom feeders of the Word of Faith movement. And uh, watch this. God. Let him ask of God. Yes, Lord. Yes. Yes. Who giveth liberally to all men. Glory. And upbraideth yes. not. But let him ask in faith. Yes, Nothing wavers. Yes. For any man that wavers is like the blowing wind on the water. Yes. Let not that man think he shall receive anything from the Lord. Yes. No man can be successful as President of the United States without your wisdom. And so we ask you today to give this man your wisdom. The man that was praying is, of course, Kenneth Copeland. You can see him kind of in the back, in the back there. And the man with the gray hair, that's David Jeremiah. I've seen David Jeremiah on TBN several occasions, not just having his church services aired by TBN, but on the set in the TBN studios, fellowshipping with Paul Crouch, who's now dead, but fellowshipping with Paul Crouch. This was about two or three years ago. And David Jeremiah was praising TBN, praising Paul Crouch, and actually preached a sermon for the purpose of raising money for TBN, one of their praise-a-thons. I saw this and my heart sank. Honestly, my heart sank. And I wrote to David Jeremiah. I wrote him a letter, and I, it was a very cordial letter. I said, Dr. Jeremiah, I appreciate so much of your teaching, but I saw you on TBN raising money for Paul Crouch, TBN praising Paul Crouch. And I said, maybe you're not aware of what the Word of Faith movement is. And so I gave him a little explanation of what Word of Faith is. And I even gave him a set of my DVDs. And I said, please watch this because you're associating with false teachers. Months went by, didn't hear anything. I wrote a follow-up letter, asked him if he got my DVD, mailed that to him. Heard nothing. So I called his office. Did my package arrive? They checked. Yes, it did. He got it. Somebody will get back to you. Nobody ever did. This was about three years ago. And yet, here we are again. Last month. The Bible is not unclear about how we are to deal with false teachers. They are not to be coddled. They are not to be tolerated. We are not to enter into spiritual enterprises with them. They are to be marked out. They are to be avoided. They are to be shunned. We are not to allow them into our churches. We're not to have fellowship with them. Because in so doing... We participate, says John, in the second in John verses nine through 11, we participate in their evil deeds. It's very discouraging to me. It's hard enough to warn people about the bad guys without the good guys going and having fellowship with the bad guys. Very unfortunate. We'll close with this. Peter, the Apostle Peter writes, and he says, false prophets arose among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. How do false teachers show up uh, with flags waving, guns blazing, saying, I'm a false prophet, I'm going to deceive you? No, secretly. They will have some truth. Remember the illustration of the water? They'll have some truth, 
but mixed in with that truth, poison. Secretly introducing destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Any man who would teach that Jesus did not come as God, denying the Jesus of the Bible. Any man who would teach that Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God, denying the Jesus of the Bible. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. When their destruction comes, and it will, it will be swift. Many will follow their sensuality. This movement is huge, and it is growing it is the face of Christianity in most of the world today. Many will follow their sensuality by reason of whom the way of truth will be maligned. What way of truth? The way of truth will be maligned. It will be distorted. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The King James puts it this way. They will make merchandise out of you. All of the prosperity preachers are opulently wealthy. And they are making merchandise out of sick and hurting and desperate people and widows. And they are making merchandise out of distorting the gospel. Every phrase in this passage of Scripture fits to a T what we see today in the modern health and wealth, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel, every phrase.